Welcome to Who All Gonna Be There, a podcast by artists for artists. We talk cash shit about everything, sometimes we get messy, and it all counts as art because we say so. I'm Mel. I'm a black femme artist, so you know what that means. I gotta work eight to ten jobs to make rent. This week, I am a professional <laughs> vodka taster, a Publix Chicken Wings quality control specialist, a fan fiction writer, and I also do graphic design of signs for those companies that make signs. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, so those companies. <laughs> Hello, I'm Maximiliano um, Max. Um, I I didn't write a bio this week. <laughs> <laughs> wing it. Um, wing it. I um, I take tap classes. Um, I embroider scarves, and I'm excited for um, the cozy time of year. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um. How to support Nat Turner Project. We have a, a Patreon page um, where we also make exclusive podcast episodes, which are only available to our Patreon subscribers. Um, we have an Etsy store. We have tote bags. We have zines. We have buttons. We have books. Um, you can subscribe to us on iTunes and uh, leave a review. Um, hopefully a good one, but either way, we will share it on air yep. or on our podcast. Follow us on SoundCloud, YouTube, Stitcher, Facebook, Instagram, um, at Nat Turner Project. Um, who are going to be there? Um, if you have arts-related questions, email us at natturnerprojectzero at gmail.com, and we will read it on here and try our best to answer whatever you send our way. All right. Thanks, Max. So today we have some very special guests. Um, we decided that we we want to use this podcast basically to answer questions that we have about the world around us, right? So a lot of it is like, who do we want to talk to for like an hour and a half? And who do we want to ask questions? So we searched our inner curiosities and 
ask ourselves, what do we want to learn more about, particularly in regards to Portland? Because this is where we are. Um, so joining us um, today are two representatives from Rose City, Antifa, um, Jack and um, Isaac. Isaac. Thank you. <laughs> um, what's up? <coughs> Not much. All right. How's it going? <laughs> it's good. <laughs> um, okay, and then um, this is Rose City Antifa's bio. Um, we are Rose City Antifa. We oppose fascist organizing in physical, cultural, and political spaces through direct action, education, and solidarity. Um, Rose City Antifa was founded in Portland, Oregon in October 2007 to confront fascist organizing taking place in our hometown. Our organiza organization formed following the successful efforts of the Ad Hoc Coalition Against Racism and Fascism to shunt, shut down Hammerfest, a neo-Nazi skinhead festival that drew over 100 boneheads to the Portland area in early October 2007. For more than 12 years, we have been dedicated to exposing, opposing, and confronting fascist activity. I meant to reread that before I came here, so thanks. <laughs> oh, okay. Does it sound okay? Yeah, it Okay. Right. Does it still hold? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. 100%. All right. So I feel like there are a lot of layers to Antifa. Um, so I guess let's start with the most basic of questions. What is anti-fascism? Anti-fascism is the movement, the social movement that opposes fascist organizing, that defends um, our community from the people who wish to do it harm. Mm -hmm. okay. The Nazis, the white supremacists, the white nationalists who want to, to organize to create a world where many of us are not welcome, a world where they can enact violence upon us, um, kill us. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let me go with the next one. Um, thank you, thank you both for being here. We appreciate it. Um, we're curious, and we're so excited to uh, talk to y'all and to host y'all on this podcast. And um, you know, being primarily like an art project, it's nice to sometimes step outside of that and to see the world. Do you beyond art? Can do you consider politics as stepping outside of art? <laughs> Don't give me into that one. Okay, all right. <laughs> I do not, but you know what I'm saying. We okay. don't only talk to like, right. artists and stuff. That's fine. Um, okay. <laughs> okay um, yeah, can um, you talk a little bit about uh, your like history and origins? Yeah, so the um, little bio you read is obviously our founding. And over the past 12 years, we've opposed a good number of fascist organizers um, but more recently, in the last like three or four years, our activity has really increased with the election of Donald Trump and the various far-right fascist and white nationalist movements that that election has emboldened and um, motivated to come into Portland to try to attack people. Yeah, the far-right landscape around here has changed a lot since the Hammerfest thing. Those are Those guys are sort of more like classic neo-Nazi skinheads that people probably have an image of in their mind, but um, yeah, the, there's just now so many more types of fascists and members of the far right and they organize in different ways with like overlapping but different ideologies. Yeah. Over the past like 12 years, we've, we've gone after a number of different um, 
kind of examples of the fa- of like fascist creep in Portland. So um, one notable one was there was a uh, co- co-op organizer at um, City Bikes named Tim Calvert, and he organ- he organized like 9/11 Truth stuff. Oh, and he actually <coughs> invited like a a Holocaust denial like oh. propagandist to come speak <coughs> about 9/11 Truth. Yeah. So one of the campaigns that Rose City um, did in the past was to get him kicked out of that co-op. Uh, we've also exposed kind of like more countercultural fascists, groups like the Wolves of, of Vinland, who are kind of organizing this weird kind of masculinist, like pagan fasci- fascism. Mm. Um, we've also done kind of more, I guess, like, I think of the right word here. We proposed groups like the American Freedom Party, who yeah. were kind of like these weird third positionist fascists who mm. kind of co-opted a lot of libertarian language to yeah. try to appeal to those people. So we've gone over like we've opposed like a, a wide variety mm-hmm. of mm. groups, some of whom don't kind of always seem to fit that classic neo-Nazi bonehead right. yeah. look or label. Yeah, we have to be pretty flexible in our tactics and approaches to those different groups because they organize in different ways and uh, present different threats. Do you feel, you mentioned um, Trump as kind of like this watershed um, event that precipitated um, or possibly created more fascist identities. Um, My question to that is, do you feel that there has been kind of an uprising of the fascist movement or is it that they're more comfortable operating in plain sight now? I think it's a little bit of both in a way. Um, obviously, Trump sort of just gave voice to a lot of latent racism and white supremacy that was within the Republican Party, and he sort of animated that to feel comfortable expressing itself. Mm-hmm. That, in turn, emboldened a lot of these fascist and far-right organizers to sort of practice this entryism and to gain new recruits from those circles to radicalize people who, from, you know, more mainstream, quote-unquote, conservative circles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, it, like, an important moment, um, just as an example, was when Trump uh, said that he would pay for the legal fees of anyone who was arrested for assaulting um, someone at the, at his at a Trump rally. Yeah. Assaulting and, counter-protesters. Like, assaulting Trump. counter-protesters, exactly. And um, I, feel, I think that uh, made a lot of these people feel as if they're deputized by Trump to enforce, um, like, his authoritarian positions. And in fact, we've seen that kind of collaboration between the very extreme right and Trump continue to this day where, for example, in Minneapolis, or, um, at his most recent rally, he had the Oath Keepers mm. doing security for him, and he's out of the Proud Boys working security, or kind of as quasi-security at other events. Really? And I mean, a Proud Boy is the, the leader of the Latinos for Trump... Um, organization in Florida. So there's a lot of crossover happening between the kind of Trumpist elements of the Republican Party, which is almost the whole Republican Party at this point, and the kind of very street-oriented parts of the the white nationalist and far-right movement. Yeah, Yeah, Roger Stone, that guy kind of acts as a conduit. Like, he... I've seen a million pictures of him with his, like, arm around that guy, Enrique Terrio, who was the president of the Proud Boys after Gavin McInnes left, and uh, yeah, and, that, and Roger Stone has some sort of aligned to Donald Trump, uh, presumably, or did at one time. 
So in light of this kind of escalating kind of crescendo that's happening, um, perhaps because of Trump, Trump, more likely just because it's the natural conclusion of white supremacy in this country. Um, yeah. I, I wonder, like, with all of these things happening, like, what do you consider, like, what's your rubric for success? So in the most basic sense, we want to keep the street-oriented neo-Nazi white supremacist, white supremacist and fascist movements contained. We want to keep them um, repressed. We, we really want to make it so that they don't have the power to come into our communities and terrorize people, um, cause harm to people. Mm-hmm. So that is like our most basic rubric. If, if we can prevent these movements from gaining, gaining steam, from gaining the power to really hurt the people we care about, then that's a success to us. I think more broadly we want to kind of create, we want to defend the left also. Mm -hmm. So for most of these groups, they, most of these fascist and far right groups, they, you know, explicitly oppose the left. They oppose our organizing spaces no matter what they are. Mm -hmm. Um, You can see it in how all these groups will attack um, the Black Lives Matter movement Mm -hmm. and how they'll attack unions. Mm -hmm. So, in opposing them, we're also defending the spaces that are organizing for the values um, and for the change that we want to see. Yeah. yeah. When we see like communities of people developing that are equipped to fight to combat fascism and to keep it out of their neighborhoods and out of their communities, I feel like that's a big success. Um, I mean, that's a success for everyone, not just us. Um, but that's sort of what we are hoping to be able to, like, um, help along. And, um, do you feel like with the rise of maybe, like, more people, um, coming out and, like, joining the right or being more vocal on the right, have you felt, like, a similar thing, like, on the left side? Have you been getting, like, more people, like, joining you or have you been, um, feeling, like, more enthusiasm? I think so. So... I think we're we're in this kind of period where there's been a lot more activity both on the left and the right in terms of people being out in the streets, people organizing, um, in the case of the left, for a better world. And I think if you look at, like, who's been at demonstrations, there have been a lot more people at any fascist demonstrations, and those numbers have been increasing. So if you look back, like, five, six years the numbers of people coming out to oppose, like, at calls was much lower. It was a much more, like, dedicated crew of anti-fascist anarchists and left organizers who were coming out. I think as people have become more aware of the threat that the far right poses to, to them and they're, they're organizing their community, their values, they are more willing to come out into the streets to oppose them, too. Yeah. Right now I'm feeling sort of cautiously optimistic about some of these groups falling apart a bit, collapsing somewhat, giving up here and there, mm-hmm. and more and more people coming out to oppose them. Yeah. And a, and like a and different communities developing around anti-fascism, different like subcultural spaces and just and groups of friends and things like that. Yeah. I would like to ask specifically about RCA. Um cuz um I read the wiki. Um <laughs> so I know it is like ostensibly the longest-running Antifa organization in the country, right? Yeah, we're, we were the first 
group in the United States to use that name, and we sort of took that name because we wanted to show that we were more we were influenced um, not only by the kind of anti-racist action mm-hmm. movement that RCA, the, the organizers of RCA, directly came out of, um, which was kind of the U.S. homegrown anti-racist movement mm-hmm. that mostly opposed Nazi entryism into punk and other subcultural circles. Mm-hmm. Uh, we wanted to not only show that we were influenced by that, but also influenced by the kind of rich history of um, European anti-fascism in mm-hmm. the 90s and early 2000s, mm-hmm. um, and influenced by the tactics and the militancy that they were developing. Mm-hmm. Um, did you want to ask something? I have a question, but if you have a follow-up, you can go ahead. I do have a follow-up. Mm-hmm. So polite. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have to work with each other. <laughs> so I know that... Um, Antifa movements um, are kind of based on this, uh, they're considered, each of them are considered less a group and more kind of like this on autonomous thing, right? Um, and that anyone can f- can uh, can run on the spectrum from socialism to anarchism to anti-authoritarianism. So where does RCA fall within that? So in terms of um, the political identity of people within the group, RCA is a non-sectarian left organization. Awesome. So all of us who organize in it are of the left, and we agree to a sort of, um, but I guess the most political of our points of unity within the, the Torch Network, which is the, the larger network of a couple of specific anti-fascist groups that we also organize with, is that we believe in a free classless society, mm-hmm. um, and that we're or- we are organizing is intended to create that society, or that we want to put those beliefs into practice in our organizing, and ultimately we want to defend movements um, that want to create that society as well. Okay. But as long as you, you agree to that point of unity, a free class of society, you're yeah. <laughs> okay to join. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We have, I mean, there's like a fairly strong anarchist tendency and tradition in Rose City Antifa, but we all, yeah, not everyone identifies themselves as that, and um, that being non-sectarian is very crucial to our organizing. I, um, I don't think we could really do it if we were trying to have little infights with each other. Yeah. Um, then, like, uh, yeah, like, listening to, like, um, listen to what y- y'all are saying and, like, how, um, I guess, like, thinking about, like, knowing your enemy then thinking about, like, how informed you are about, like, what's going on with the right, does that mean, like, you're, like, constantly having to take in, like, all this, like, right-wing, like, news and, like, information and, like, it just seems like you're, like, to be so on top of it is, like, to, right, does that become the full world? The research crew a little bit. It's horrible. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, we try and, like, frequently check in with each other and stuff and because it's bad, yeah, it's really, really bad. Um, Following, you know, like, like, we look at things like Breitbart or whatever, but more specifically we look at individual people and what they're saying on Facebook and like uh, what they're saying on Daily Stormers forum and things like that and it's really really ugly and um, pretty stomach turning um, so and, but yeah it's we need to know like and we are, I mean if you read our uh, articles those receipts are crucial to the work we do yeah there's there's a, there's a definitely an amount of just ex- you have, you end up exposing yourself to a lot of really terrible rhetoric, yeah. um, horrible images, and it's it's not 
the best, even for someone who's not in, in the research subgroup or working group, even just doing social media mm-hmm. in terms of, like, you'll see other people reporting on these things. So being in that mil- milieu, it ends up being... Um, there is a lot of exposure to kind of far-right um, materials and, and information, and it's, it's an unfortunate part of it. And so what we try to do in our articles is kind of distill that Mm-hmm. So that everybody else doesn't have to wade through yeah. dozens yeah. of hours of video yeah. footage of you know far right bigots saying horrible things. We can find you know a few and say these are pretty indicative. Yeah, <laughs> it's and give the people that information without overwhelming them with how horrible these people are. Yeah, I can personally see it as, like the utility of it, and I guess I have the constitution for it. Not everyone in the group, is, no one is expected to look at that stuff, and. Um, but some people can't, just for whatever reason, I'm, I'm not immune to it at all, but, you know, I can just do it because somebody has to. Yeah. And then, um, you mentioned, like, groups and subgroups. Is, like, Antifa divided into, like, different groups that do different things? So we're, we're organized like many activist groups are, and then we have, you know, working groups that work on specific, specific tasks and aspects of of the work. Mm -hmm. Um, it's just a better and more effective way to kind of organize the, many different strands of work that we're trying to do and kind of tie them together in a way that's yeah just effective an effective use of everyone's time you know we're we're working people and (laughs) this is something we're doing like on top of jobs so we we try to be very very effective and judicious with like our time yeah and i feel like that kind of division of labor that we have like brings out the best in us too like people do what they're interested in and what they're good at and learn new skills and like work together and like be friends okay um i'm i'm always like as someone who uh is fascinated by american history um one of the things that fascinates me is like the dynamic of uh human interaction within like movements within groups like this i'm curious like how do you deal with things like hubris or ego or even like offsetting having to like inhale like these toxic images like what 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 are the logistics behind dealing with that so we we have you know working groups that try to we have a working group that tries to mediate those conflicts yeah. that tries to you know sit people down and, and talk those issues out yeah. um and figure out ways to resolve them mm-hmm. um and that group also plans you know social activities so that oh. we can unwind as much as you can unwind all the tension that's built up in doing this work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not a conflict-free space by any means, but, um, yeah, we just have stuff in place to work through it. And everyone is really committed to anti-fascism, so I think that really helps a lot. Yeah. That's great. All right. Um, okay. Um, thinking about, like, um, the stuff you're doing with it, like, in Portland, then, um, how much communication or, like, overlap or, like, coordinating is there with, like, other groups, like, nationally or even, like, internationally? Or, like, how wide is your, like, network? Or you know? So we, we've hosted groups um, for talks from, you know, as far away as Germany and the United Kingdom. And we've certainly worked with other anti-fascist groups in the country around, like, uh, specific... Um, both other groups in the Pacific Northwest and 
other groups yeah, around the country on specific docs uh, targets and mm-hmm. like batches of docs. So one that was m- kind of recently came out was the um, Identify Europa set of docs, which was where we and a lot of other anti-fascists around the country exposed the organ like a huge number of organizers with within this group, this explicitly white white nationalist group called Identity Europa, which after these docs actually rebranded itself because they've lost (laughs) so much credibility and they started a doc support group within their (laughs) (laughs) organization. So we did a lot of damage to them. Um, They're now called American Identity Movement. But basically, people all over the country, you know, we all got this information. We created channels to work through that and discuss it and see who could take on which tasks. And, yeah, a lot of people got exposed through that work. Yeah. And we're also pretty tight with other local anti-fascist groups. Okay. Yeah. Uh, specifically, though, we also are part of a, a nationwide network called the Torch Network, um, which kind of grew out of the ashes of um, the Anti-Racist Action Network. So there's a lot of overlap fr- with that kind of earlier movement. Mm-hmm. And in fact, a lot of the, the groups still have ARA in the name. <laughs> <laughs> um. You mentioned, like, doxing. So doxing is, like, um, where you put all of somebody's information, like, online and stuff like that. Um, then I guess I'm also wondering, um, so, like, nowadays, right, like, 20, 2019, near the end of 2019, like, how much of, like, um, your activity or, like, an activism exists, like, online versus, like, in person and stuff like that? Or yeah, There's a decent split. So, I mean, we've been online since 2007 Um, we've pretty much always used the internet as a way to disseminate information and calls to action Uh, I think the internet is a great tool for informing people about you know the dangerous neo-nazis organizing in their community by giving them the addresses and workplaces of those people (laughs) (laughs) so but I mean that's also followed up with you know in real life so to speak, stuff, you know, flyering the neighborhoods where those people live, flyering their workplaces mm-hmm. to let their co-workers know, hey, you're working with a Nazi. Yeah. So it's it's definitely not entirely online, but at the same time, uh, the internet is a really good way to organize numbers of people quickly for specific tasks, things like call-ins and, and pressure campaigns like that. Yeah, and, it, and fascists seem to be unable to resist just posting and posting and posting, so that makes it kind of... <laughs> you know, easy for us to get information. Yeah. Like posting, like, what they're doing and whatever they are. Yeah, everything, every detail of their lives and every hateful thought that comes across their heads. And um, And their organizing channels are pretty much online, too, usually not very well secured forums and things like that. So there's there's a good, you know, we get a lot of data from online. In fact, most of the data is online. Well, I want to follow up with that. Um... So, for the most part, these people are pretty open online, right? It depends on the organizer. There are certainly organizers who are more versed in in internet security mm-hmm. and in mm-hmm. in how to like lock down their their social media things like that. But there are a lot of people who they just put everything up. Yeah. Do, do you think that speaks to a kind of? <laughs> What? I don't know if, you're, if I know where you're going with this conversation. Okay. <laughs> Do you think that speaks to kind of an enabling of that behavior and of those idea, dial, 
ideologies from their immediate community and that maybe that's part of a bigger problem uh, like that they do it for clicks and yeah definitely a lot of them do for sure there's yeah. a there's a certain amount of ego stroking i think that happens mm-hmm. amongst their own communities and you see this on kind of you know places like the patriot prayer facebook page where they you know engage in this kind of like one-upmanship of, yeah. of rhetoric of you know hatefulness yeah. so conspiracy theories and conspiracy and theory. bizarre lies yeah is that where you thought i was going no okay well I just thought you you thinking like equating like intelligence <laughs> to their beliefs and them not thinking about being more secure. No, no, no. no. <laughs> I think that's low hanging fruit in terms of like uh, discussing these things. But um, earlier you mentioned Breitbart, and I'm curious, like, as as people who kind of wade through the kind of terrorism and nonsense of all of that. Um, platforms like Fox News, Breitbart, Breitbart, other ones that I don't, I can't name because I don't go to those platforms. Yeah. Um, do those, do those present to you as actual real people spouting ideology, or rather corporate kind of like shells um, to attract those people? It hardly, it hardly even matters. Like the, mm-hmm. those, those platforms, mainstream, yeah. the, the really. Um, vile white and like explicit white supremacy of the more of like the alt right, the more explicitly fascist movements. I mean, Tucker Carlson has a primetime spot on Fox News, and he's and you know, the things he says two weeks ago would be on the Daily Stormer for sure. And he sanitizes them slightly and presents them in a little bit more soft of a way, but it's the same core belief, the same core white supremacy that he's the same violent white supremacy that he's mm-hmm. presenting. So I think they, they realize that it's a, it's a way to get a really committed audience to, to spend money, to spend clicks and time mm-hmm. on their website. Um, but it hardly, it, yeah, it hardly matters if they believe it or not because the effect is the same whether they do or not. Yeah, there, there are people who are just completely cynical, opportunistic grifters, and they find that they can cash in on saying these kinds of things and then there's like there's also true believers and I don't think that you can I think it would be pretty impossible to like separate those two things once the money starts coming in it's like yeah sure I believe that whatever Um, I want to talk a little bit about the portrayal or the representation of Antifa in mainstream news media outlets um, I went to the Rose City Antifa Facebook page, and I saw some pretty vile comments under posts, like mm. from like awful people, <laughs> I guess. And I'm sure that's something that you're used to. But like, I wonder if like this inability to really understand um, what Antifa is doing is in service of Antifa, or if that hinders you. Does that make sense? Yeah, so first I want to ask is so there's actually a fake page that has like a similar number of likes because they bought likes and oh, appeared like yeah. about two years ago. So <laughs> oh. there's one that it, that is fake on Facebook. Um, so okay. be, be aware of that. All right. Um, there, there is one fake page out there that we've tried to get taken down Jeez. a number of times and it hasn't. Okay. Stuck. But I think that one might be called like Portland Antifa or something. No, there's one that is called Rose oh, City okay. Antifa as well and it has, it has about 8,000 fewer likes than us. But it's it's very easy to get fooled by that. We tried to to ban and hide 
the really terrible comments on our page. So okay. if one looks okay. a little more cleaned up, that's probably ours. Yeah. Also, if one looks if one looks a little like really like weird, yeah. it's not ours. Okay, good to know. Yeah, there was like one page that like that that page made like a hoax that we were like poisoning people's dogs, for example, which oh, we did geez. not do. Okay. <laughs> we love dogs <laughs> so much. Not, we love cats more, though. No. This, is a, this is a fact that we love cats more. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> you know, it's true. <laughs> Trying to be non-sectarian. <laughs> but to the, to the second part of the question, we're not non-sectarian about that. <laughs> Everyone else in the group would agree with me on this. <laughs> um, to the second part of that, I think that the purpose of the, the, the sort of mainstream media with regards to social movements... Mm-hmm invariably is to try to separate those movements from the people that those movements are speaking to. Um, So this is true of labor movements, uh, of anti-racist movements, and it's been true for, you know, throughout history. The the purpose of the media is to separate the movement from its base. So I think it does does hinder us, but at the same time, people, I think, can, through social media, through, you know, seeing us in the streets, can see for themselves, like, you know, the people we're against and what they're saying and what they're doing and what we're saying and doing. So, I mean, I will say this, like, um, I went to apparently this fake Rose City Antifa (laughs) Facebook page. I went to Twitter, I typed in hashtag Antifa and terrible, like, right, I got like a, like a barrage of right wing, terrible people just saying terrible things. Um, and like questionable, like outlets. Um, so I don't feel like it's terribly easy to find a lot of like um, relevant or trust like trustworthy information about Antifa. And the only reason I know anything about Antifa is because like some of the people that I follow on Twitter, um, particularly um, scholars and academics, actually do know those things, mm-hmm. and they like kind of do some reportage on it. But like. I do find it interesting how hard it is to find real information about Antifa. Yeah. yeah. It's definitely a frustration of ours. It's a frustration yeah. we share that there is there is a lot of misinformation out there. There's a lot of... And a lot of, you know, the stuff we do does get buried yeah. by this kind of deluge of um, right-wing talking points yeah. at times. What I call uh, dogs... American flags and eagles Twitter. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, You've got the "Don't Tread on Me" flag. Yeah, yeah. and the uh, cry laughing emoji. <laughs> <laughs> they love it. Do you have any? Um, yeah. So I wanted to um, hear a little bit about or talk a little bit about um, the recent like Proud Boys rally mm-hmm. that was here a few months ago. I think that was like one of the first things that made us think. Maybe we should try to get Antifa in. The one in August. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then um, I'd also, like, maybe I, I think I'd read this in an article, but I can't remember which one it was. I had re- heard or read that um, more right-wing groups were, like, coming to Portland because of how big, like, the counter turnout is would get them, like, more attention. So, like, Portland becoming this, like, um, yeah, this spot, like, this go-to spot for, like, right-wing um, protests because of the amount of attention they would get. And I'm just like, I just, yeah, I want to hear about, I guess, the rally, then maybe all that, I guess. Yeah, yeah so um, to speak about the first bit about the, the August 17th rally. 17th, right? Yep. Yeah, the August 17th rally. So that was organized by um, a kind of washed-up right-wing, former Infowars 
reporter, in air quotes there, um, Joe Biggs, who in the lead up to that had some very like incendiary rhetoric on his um, Facebook page. It was so incendiary that the FBI, not really known as you know, paragons of protecting people, um, visited his his house. Yeah, told they came to knock it off. And then he was like, I never said anything like that. I was just kidding. Uh, don't bring your guns. <laughs> <laughs> but so the, that rally and pretty much all of these rallies are kind of, they're not to get media attention. What they really want to do is they want to kind of have this decisive victory against what they see as this kind of like left bastion of mm-hmm. Portland. I mean, obviously we as people living here know all the ways that the city you know, fails to combat white supremacy every day, fails to combat poverty, fails to combat the social ills that capitalism creates. But they see the the city as this kind of emblematic of all these values um, and movements that they oppose. So they don't want to come for attention. They want to come because they want to defeat that. They want to win. And so when we come out in opposition, even though it seems like, oh, it's giving the media attention... It's, it's really denying them that victory. You know, if only 20 people came out, or if no one came out, they would say, you know, we won. And, you know, that would embolden them more. When we come out and we oppose them, and when they get, you know, opposed through direct action in a militant way, mm-hmm. um, a lot of them don't come back. They, they see that they can't have that easy victory, and, you know, they decide that actually organizing isn't for them anymore. Yeah, and it's expensive to travel all over the place. Um, Waste this, their money. Yeah, this is like what some of these people have been doing as their like summer vacation for the last couple years, and it's pretty pathetic. Yeah, it wastes the money of their of their movement to do these kind of rallies. Like for this last one in August, you know, mm-hmm. dozens if not hundreds of yeah. proud boys wasted you know several hundred dollars flying to Portland yeah. to have a fifteen minute photo op where they're also you know shown and videotaped, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, buddy-buddying and palling around with, you know, American Guard neo-Nazi skinheads. So <laughs> it's like not, it's not a win for them in right. that way. It's it's a waste of money. It's, they lose in terms of, you know, they expose themselves for what they are and they don't get that victory that they want. They don't get that, that image of them yeah. beating down and in anti-fascists, yeah. which is what they want. Instead, a lot of times they get bloodied. Yeah. If, yeah. If you want to fight anti-fascists, Portland is like the spot for them to come. And it's also kind of interesting to consider in relation to Oregon's history as founded as like a white, a white homeland. Um, and yeah. it kind of has remained that and a place where they want to defend as a white homeland. Yes. Um, yeah. On various levels. Yeah. And the sort of neo-Nazi ideology circles. Mm-hmm. Portland and the Pacific the Pacific Northwest is seen as this kind of like, mm-hmm. there's a name for a Northwest Territorial Imperative where mm-hmm. this is like the whitest place in the country, so this is where they're going to build their ethno-state. Mm-hmm. And so in that sense, Portland is a place that, you know, at least, at least says that it has the values of, you know, multiculturalism and diversity. However much it fails to live up to that, yeah. um, is a place where they they kind of have to to fight. Yeah. I mean, I I I feel that Portland still very much sells itself as a white utopia. Like it's coded, obviously, but that's 
I don't think that they're going that out of their way work. to sell themselves as a multicultural bastard. Very true. <laughs> like, there are jo- many jokes made about how Portland is the whitest city, and it's like it's kind of like this joking, laughing thing. But that's also kind of like signal boosting, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> I just think that's interesting because, like, given its history and how it's still perpetuating that same thing, but also kind of hiding behind this kind of neoliberalism, which is interesting to me. Yeah, I think the like kind of twee aesthetic that like signifies whiteness to a lot of people to the far right signifies liberalism, mm-hmm. and liberalism to them signifies diversity. Diversity. Yeah. So oh. okay. there's a lot of like <laughs> galaxy brain takes going on <laughs> yeah, in, yeah, in yeah. the far right sphere <laughs> that yeah. kind of like mm-hmm. make them see things that like aren't yeah. true. <laughs> yeah, I wonder a lot. When the moon is right and I'm alone, um, <laughs> what kind of cognitive dissonance it takes to believe those things? Oh, gymnastics. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's just a lot of brain worms going on. <laughs> <laughs> it's just yeah. like a little worm, and it's eating up like all the brain cells, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like Pac-Man. <laughs> um, I want to talk a little bit more, like directly about your direct action tactics, um, because, like as I said, I. I'm fascinated with American history, and violence has long been used. Like, violence and direct action and, like, um, just, like, confrontational um, modes of, um, like, positioning oneself in terms of the government, in terms of state. That has long been, like, a tool of, like, democracy. Mm -hmm. And it seems that everyone is okay with that unless it's in service of anti-racism then violence becomes a problem. I wonder what your thoughts on that are. I would agree with that. I mean, we get asked the question so much, you know, what about the violence? And it really kind of betrays the, the, the blind spots of the people who ask these questions, the kind of mainstream media outlets who ask these questions, because they, they could never see how these, how, you know, when their engagements with Nazis in the street is self-defense on the part of... Um, just, you know, people who these Nazis want to harm. Mm -hmm. And so that self-defense is kind of recast as these violent attacks Mm -hmm. on free speech warriors, Mm -hmm. even though that's that's not the case. These people are organizing to do harm to, you know, many different communities, whether it's undocumented people, whether it's Jewish people, whether it's Mm -hmm. gay people. So I think it, it really betrays the fact that the kind of like mainstream political circles don't want to see um, oppressed people acting in self-defense right. because that necessarily is going to bring them up against the kind of structures in place, the the larger social structures that oppress them. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I agree that militant yeah. self-defense and, and militant action has, has yeah. been a part of movements for freedom and democracy mm-hmm. since, you know, the founding of the United States Very since colon- the yeah. beginning of colonialism in yes. um, this continent. I think that's an, a, a kind of good seg into um, my next question um, because, you know, I'm a black woman who grew up in the South, who grew up in America. Um, I am forced inherently to look at everything through a critical race lens. So my question um, for you um, following that is, there is also a spectrum of tolerance um, in this country around who is allowed to be violent, who is allowed to 
display various forms of rage. And I would say that um, people of color, specifically black people, don't get that luxury. So I, my, like, I guess my question is, for people of color, for black people who are part of Antifa, like, who decide to take on direct action, are there any sort of guidelines in place to protect them? Because the stakes are higher for those people in very real ways. Yeah, I mean, I think we would, um, we kind of all line up and according to our own comfort levels. Mm-hmm. Um, and that would be a conversation. I mean, we can have those kind of conversations in a specific moment, but um, I think we're just kind of um, figuring things out um, in a more situational um, style, if that makes sense. Yeah, we have like, there are obviously like different levels of action needed at, at you know yeah. demos things like that yeah and so we, we do try to be like sensitive to, to sort of what what aspects what people need like yeah. help with what people don't yeah. need help with you know okay. what people can take on certain roles what people um, maybe don't want to for various reasons take on certain roles within actions okay um the one, the one good thing about being masked up, though, is that it's much harder for the cops to figure out <laughs> yeah. what your skin color is. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that helps. <laughs> yeah. Do you have a follow-up question? Um, yeah, I guess to, to build on Melanie's question, um, how, does, like, how does, like, black liberation fit into Antifa? How does, like, um, Antifa potentially aid in, like, the end goal of, like, black liberation or... How does, yeah, like, how does that work, like, within that, like, how does Antifa potentially also address, like, potential, like, blind spots um, in regard to, like, yeah, black liberation or um, race within the left? Mm -hmm. I think to answer the first part of your question, um, we are, I kind of think of Antifa as, like, uh, a rear guard action that we can defend uh, left spaces uh, in, from this specific type of threat. Uh, we can't protect people necessarily from the state, but um, we can. We know a lot about fascists, and we have a lot of experience in opposing them. So that's like one less thing that you um, can. Like it's maybe one less thing that you might have to worry about. Um, yeah. So we've for, like. In terms of publishing information, that obviously helps mm-hmm. identify threats to, to people. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've also, you know, talked to various nonprofits about, like, hey, here are people you should be concerned about. We've sent, like, tips we've gotten along where we see, you know, a, a Nazi saying, like, oh, some specific threat, we've sent that along to people. We've been asked a lot of times to do security for various marches mm-hmm. um, that are, you know, black-centered, and we've tried our best to be present as security for that and not in block it usually because mm-hmm. <laughs> that you know in some ways sets us apart a little bit mm-hmm. um so we try to materially offer offer aid to black liberation movements when we can and obviously we see the fight against structural white supremacy as just as important as the fight against insurgent white supremacy which is where we focus more of our energy mm-hmm. Yeah, and we're very, very open to criticism and try and do our best. Then, um, to kind of build on that one, too, um, thinking, um, I grew up in Texas, and, um, recently, 
there's been like a string of you know police killings in Texas. Um, so I'm curious uh, about what you know or the state of like Texas and Tifa or the movements in Texas or potential organizations you're in touch with. There is one somewhat less active torch chapter in Texas, Central Texas, anti-racist action. Um, but we unfortunately don't have a lot of like really close connections with people in Texas. Um, which is unfortunate because it is, you know, the center of a lot of neo-Nazi organizing and obviously state white supremacy and structural racism, whether it's centered along the border or against black people in, in terms of like police killings. Mm-hmm. So yeah, unfortunately we don't have as many like close ties with, with that area. Yeah. But if anyone wanted to reach out to us, yeah, if you want, if you if you're an anti-fascist or an anti-racist organizing in Texas, send us an email. Yeah. Get in touch, please. Slide into We'd our love DMs. to talk with you. Yeah, what yeah. is your email? It is fight underscore them underscore back at riseup, r i s e u p dot net, okay. and we are um, at Rose City Antifa on Twitter because we got in on Twitter very early. <laughs> <laughs> We should get on Instagram. Yeah, I like Instagram a lot. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of. I know it's it's yeah. not it's not good as a, an activist to say you like any social media, <laughs> but I do enjoy Instagram, and I think it's a good platform. But it's somewhat more difficult for our work because they tend to be a little stricter about what gets taken down, yeah, and put up. So it's a little harder. But oh. there's tons of Nazis on there. There are a lot of Nazis on there, and they don't take those. Down. No, on oh, Instagram. Yeah, on Instagram. Yeah. Really? Oh, so many. Yeah, yeah. we I mean, maybe not our circles. <laughs> we've gotten a lot of receipts from Instagram. Yeah. Um, there was a Nazi Aaron showmaker who worked at Momo's downtown in downtown Portland, and there he had a lot of really vile. Yeah receipts up on Instagram. Yeah, he was a really hardcore neo-Nazi and they were reluctant to fire him at first but they got millions of phone calls and um, had to let him go. It took millions of phone calls? <laughs> Maybe hundreds, but it, yeah. They, it took they, a, yeah, they didn't, they didn't fire him for a few days, even though yeah. there was, I mean, the receipts were... I mean, it was were really... It was awful. So is there usually, like, a varying level like, to which, like, employers react to that? Is there some people, like, fired immediately some people like don't care at all or yeah, yeah. It, there, there's a spectrum i mean yeah. some people you show them the receipts and they're you know they show them you show them the anti-semitism the racism and they fire that employee yeah. okay. some places yeah they don't care yeah. they look past it they don't see it as as important to show there's no place for yeah. you know those those type of people but then you like pressure those places yeah and yeah. sometimes that pressure works and sometimes it unfortunately does not yeah, yeah that's uh, that's one area where we can use all of the like community support we can get um, so like if you follow us on Twitter and see uh, a call out for a, um, a call out for a call in a call out for a call in <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah please that is so helpful yeah it really does it's a really like simple thing because you just call up and you say you know yeah. I see that you're employing this person who said these things why do you continue to employ him do you not like care about yeah it's a weird social interaction that you'll probably never get to have in any other context but it takes about a minute and the more of those that they get that employers get i mean obviously employers mostly care about money Mm -hmm. and the more you can kind of waste their time 
yep. the more that they see it impacting their bottom line and the more willing. If they don't, you know, care about, you know, combating Nazism on its own, they do care about money, and they will make that choice, hopefully. I have a question about that. Um, do you find that the people who are kind of discovered um, kind of fall across the spectrum socioeconomically, or is it like mostly middle class, or is it mostly working class? Like, they f- so they they fall across the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, you yeah. see, you, you find people who you know their parents are, you know, editors for newspapers, yeah. you know, and they're seventeen, and you know, a rich kid. But and racism I, is dying. <laughs> <laughs> and then you yeah. find people who do have, you know, their job. Their job is like machinist or something. So it, yeah. you really do see, or they work for, you know, um, the Bureau of Water in Portland. Yep. Or the Parks. Or the Parks Department. Yeah. Gregory Isaacson, employed by yep. the Parks Department, Holocaust denier. Yep. Uh, Quincy Anatello, the Water Bureau is a Islamophobic and incredibly misogynist and, homo- I, yeah, and homophobic are these currently employed? currently employed yeah that guy Quincy Anatello is one of those people who holds up the signs that have all the fire and slurs on them yeah yeah yeah, yeah. And, I mean sure. they've all they all of both of those people Gregory Isaacson and Quincy Quincy and Franklin uh, Anatello yeah have both been you know Photograph marching side by side with neo Nazis at Joey Gibson's rallies, but mm-hmm. not fired from the Parks Department or from the Water Department of Water. Wow. Water Bureau. <laughs> not to be a little salty about that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I am. <laughs> yeah. Do you. I mean, obviously, because you see, like, who these people are, you see their faces, you learn their names. Do you feel like the media goes out of its way, like mainstream, supposedly liberal media platforms go out of their way to put a certain face on fascism? I don't necessarily think they go out of their way to, to put a certain face on it, but I think that they're, they kind of end up beholden to this sort of false idea of neutrality. So mm. they see themselves as this like arbiter that... <laughs> Is you know perfectly neutral, and so they, they yeah they see themselves as objective. So they look at you know they want to portray both sides the same way, even though that's obviously not you know ac- like r- accurate to how reality is. Mm-hmm. But also the media class are like you know they're mostly wealthy people, and so they and they hate the working class. So yeah, they present fascist as overwhelmingly working class. There's like the idea of like the white working class that elected Trump, when that's just factually incorrect yes um and so yeah i I mean if i was what you're getting at yeah yeah yeah. um i think there's a there's i feel and this is because i am not neutral around the topic of the media um (laughs) i just feel that this idea of objectivity is just kind of like a commodification like a selling point used for media and that they definitely sold the idea of the white working class as um, the people who voted Trump in, but the polls did not support that theory. And what I found most disturbing is that people didn't question it. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, this whole yeah, lots of people hate the working class, um, and 
yeah, more people voted for Mitt Romney than Trump. Mm-hmm. The people who voted for Trump were just Republicans, like the Republicans yeah. who yeah. vote and voted for Trump. And like certainly a lot of those people are working class, but I think yeah. the unfortunate thing is that kind of like media lens obscures the, like the the bonds of solidarity that should exist yeah. between you know the white working class, mm-hmm. um, people of color who are working class, mm-hmm. and it's those movements that are going to take movements composed of all those people working together that are going to take down capitalism and white supremacy. So there is this political angle of it to sabotage that kind of working together. And we've seen that, you know, even back to the 30s in the United States. Yeah. Um, Whiteness is used to sabotage working class movements. That's a good thing. splitting them up. I wanted to talk to you about whiteness um, because... I read a little bit of this. Um, it was recommended to me um, for research. Um, and there is a chapter in here um, that specifically calls out whiteness. Um, so, yeah. Um, can I just read a little bit of it and get your thoughts on it? Sure, please. Okay. I have not actually read this book. Oh, okay. the handbook, so. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I don't have as much time for reading anymore. <laughs> And I mostly yeah. read sci-fi. So. <laughs> I do a lot of skim reading these days. Uh. I only get to really read on vacation. So. <laughs> um, anti-fascists must not only concern themselves with those who organize on behalf of white supremacy and those who casually parrot racist slogans, but also those who never say anything at all. Fascist regimes thrive on widespread support, or at least consent, by cultivating pride in and fear of the loss of a variety of identities, privileges, and traditions. One of the most important in the context of the resurgent far right in the United States is whiteness. And while many European and American commentators saw the Holocaust and the rise of fascism as a lamentable deviation from the Enlightenment traditions of Western civilization, Aimé César rightly concluded that Europe is indefensible. So too must we add that as a modern identity forged through slavery and class rule, Whiteness is indefensible. We agree. Yeah, <laughs> I agree with that. Okay. <laughs> I don't. I can't speak 100. for every person in the organization, but I mean, I agree with that. Mm-hmm. M. A. Cazale's uh, discourse yeah. on colonialism is one of my favorite texts. Oh. Yeah. So. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if anyone in our group had anything positive to say about whiteness, I would. I would be, be very surprised. Very sketched out. Okay. I mean, yeah, whiteness defined itself, you know, in the 1500s in opposition to. As, a, as an identity founded on the impression of black people. Mm-hmm. And a little bit before that. No, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Also, there's there's an interesting amount of, like, early European Islamophobia that, like, actually really resonates today in some ways with, like, the far right. It's very huh. bizarre. But you see, like, both those strands kind of tied together. Yeah. Both, like, the Orientalism mm-hmm. and the anti-blackness. Yeah. I just think it's interesting because we live in a time where... Calling someone white is seen as a slur, which is very strange to me. I feel like we're in the twilight zone. Like, like calling out whiteness is considered, at best, impolite, Um, Mm. which I think is just another, like, yeah, it's like that kind of grinder mechanism of throwing something into white supremacy and what you get back. But (laughs) yeah, lots of white people would like to disavow it as a way of like not actually dealing with. The material reality of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have a follow-up question? Um, my remaining questions are not 
follow-up questions. <laughs> oh, so you're, you're done with this. Um, <laughs> you got some other questions, too. Yeah. I'm not done with it per se. I mean, if you have more to say, but my next questions are... No, that went a lot easier than I thought it would be, so I... Yeah, we're not, we're not going to sit here and defend whiteness. <laughs> okay. <I'm sure>. <laughs> <laughs> it's bad. <laughs> All right. All right, so um, you kind of mentioned this earlier with... Um, mentioning like punk and stuff mm-hmm. and um i grew up uh like in the dallas punk scene Hell and yeah. um there's well, a lot of good bands out of the dallas punk scene yeah <laughs> and um i feel like that was like kind of like beginning of my four ways i had always been into like um like leftist movements like the black panthers and, like the sla and the weather underground as like a kid and stuff like that okay. um but like getting into like punk and then getting into like anarcho and crust um, led me to like anarchism and stuff like that than like going to like info shop we- uh, websites and finding out about like um, different like leftist movements all over the world and stuff like that then um, so I'm curious about like but then I feel like in my years of like life and stuff like that I kind of like you know fell, fell out of the scene mm-hmm. and stuff like that then um, became like less tuned in to um, I guess like the international like leftist movements and stuff like that so I'm curious to see like um how influential like punk is or like how many people came through like punk or like where it exists nowadays with like antifa and um i mean i found out about anti-fascism through punk so yeah me too i was was an animal punk so um i i i mean i heard house rotten's like fuck Nazi sympathy and I was like that is the yeah. political line that you should have about Nazis like yeah yeah. like don't let them speak don't let them don't give them a platform like don't sympathize with them to the extent of like oh we should hear them, hear them out and like combat them in the marketplace of ideas so yeah. punk was, was very influential for me I think it was very influential for a number of other people in the group and I think right now I think punk is and like subcultural music scenes are trying and are spaces where like the idea of anti-fascism is really prevalent I, you know I see people I'm connected with from around the country you know doing benefits for a number of different causes um, you know even here in Portland there's people who are doing you know benefits every month or, or two for you know no mass muertes um, sending money to try to help you know, undocumented migrants, things like that. So I think there are a lot of, I think the punk movement is still, is, you know, trying its best for however many, you know, faults it has, which it has a lot, um, to kind of aid anti-fascism, aid leftist movements generally here and around and around the world. Yeah. I'm seeing, like, on Twitter and stuff, I see a pretty strong push in, like, uh, metal scenes around the country to push Nazis out and uh, kick even in black metal, there's a lot of people who are like, no Nazis allowed. Yeah, which is the first anti-fascist metal fest organized yeah. in Brooklyn. Oh, wow. Yeah. I think last year? <coughs> yeah, I think Flags last over Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think those scenes have now, are now starting to take, you know, the the neo-Nazism that they didn't take seriously for a long time seriously. Yeah. Um, there was a push recently to get, I think, Bone All, who is a band who's used a lot of, like, fascist imagery. Um kicked out of a show in Oakland so there's a, there's a lot of I think movement amongst from within you know punk and 
extreme music circles yeah. Yeah. to to combat white supremacy both within its midst and um, insurgent white supremacy around the country. Yeah, that pa- that fairly popular black metal band called Horna or Horne or something. Horna, I think. I think Horna. Yeah. They got kicked off of a lot of shows yeah, too. They got, their tour you know, they, they got their tour crunched. shut down by oh. yeah. any fascist and any fascist metal fans. Oh, sure. Yeah, um, growing up in like the Dallas punk scene, um, there they would like the older people would always tell stories about like um, Dallas in like the early '90s. Um, so I was never like around for any of this. It was just like all stories that <laughs> the the older people were passing down. But um, back like Dallas, the Dallas scene in like the early '90s was like infested with like Nazis and like I guess in Texas was the CHS, the Confederate Hammerskins, was like um, really big back then. So I guess um, according to the stories. The, the Dallas punks and then like the local metalheads had their like um, various like crews or whatever I hope I'm not like divulging any scene secrets <laughs> um, <laughs> but like I, I remember this but I remember like because like the metalheads there like little crew was called like um, what was it called it was maybe the pit dogs or it was some play on the word pit um, about them like you know like the like pit um, yeah and then like the Dallas kids were called like sick boys um, for whatever reason um and then I guess they had, like joined forces. And then were able to drive out all the Nazis out of like venues and like oh, clubs yeah. and stuff like that. Because I remember like coming up and not really experiencing that much as far as like ways of like um, you know Nazis or like skinheads in that sense. Um, there's like you know non-Nazi skinheads purportedly. But, uh, yeah, I mean that's, that's the case. You've, I mean I think punks have been kind of some of the most motivated people to kick neo-Nazis out of their scenes. The anti-racist action was started by you know, a multiracial um, skinhead group called the Baldies in Minneapolis mm-hmm. who organized they wanted to kick Nazis out of their scene, and they did. And that's been the case, I think, in, in punk scenes. Yeah, Portland was infested with uh, neo-Nazi skinheads in the 90s, too. And the 80s. Uh, the 80s, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was neo-Nazi skinheads who were active in the punk scene who murdered Muligat Dasaran in 1988. And... You know, there was there was definitely a movement amongst punks, and there obviously there were punks who didn't do that because they were apolitical, they were apolitical, so called, and they didn't care. Um, but there were definitely punks who were motivated to kick those people out. Yeah. Hmm. Hell yeah! Not to like talk about <laughs> punk too much. But <laughs> no. I do love it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's cool. it's pretty fun. Um, do you have a question there. Um. What what art are y'all into? <laughs> not to completely pivot, but that's not. I don't think that's a complete pivot. It's related, right? Yes, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> I listened to Lori Anderson at work today. Lori Anderson? Yeah, hadn't heard that in a while. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. In terms of like books, uh been into Octavia Butler. Oh. Um, she's a favorite of mine. She's very good. Yeah. But uh, I don't know. I don't. I don't really seek out art that much. I don't go to like museums or galleries all that much. What about like uh, shows on TV or Netflix? Or <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a valid question. Uh, kind of just watch junk TV. Mm. Yeah. So to kind of like um, detox. Like yeah, tune out cartoons and watch them with my partner. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that art can be revolutionary? Yeah, I think I think art is is very important. Yeah, um, I love seeing anti-fascist murals around Portland. Ooh, what are some um, good mu- anti-fascist murals? 
Um, the work by Enno Bonzo mm -hmm. is very good. Mm -hmm. um, they have a mural over by the Rose Quarter uh, with like a great quote for uh, that's like the worker must have bread, but she must have roses too, oh, which. I love that quote. And then there's also one at the old electric factory in Southeast, I think on like 3rd and Clay, 2nd Clay. Um, it has, you know, the three arrows in it. Which yeah. So. Love to see I like it. <laughs> you love to see it. <laughs> <laughs> but um, their work is really good. Um, uh, I like seeing graffiti. I, I like graffiti, and I think graffiti. Is cool. Yeah, <laughs> like good graffiti though. Yeah, like good. Just tags. any graffiti. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> well, not like Nazi graffiti, but <laughs> yeah. I like tags and yeah. I think that's. I think that's that's, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> I would like I like to see art when it is very clearly connected to a social movement, um, mm. and not when it is someone uh, appropriating something from you know a movement that they had nothing to do with. Mm. and getting a, you know, huge grant and so on. Yeah, but I, I don't necessarily think art has to be, like, explicitly political no, to yeah. be revolutionary. Like, sure. I think people going out and, like, tagging and showing, like, hey, we are you yeah. know, people who have our right to the city, too. We have the right to, yeah. you know, create art in this urban space that we live in. Mm -hmm. It's not, like, yeah, that kind of, like... Um, I think of the right word. Re reclamation yeah. of private property, so called as public property, is, uh, is revolutionary as well. That's yeah. kind of why I'm so into I like graffiti a lot. So. Yeah. yeah. Giving away all sorts of personal leaflets. Do you feel that art created within an institutional space can be revolutionary? Or do you think it's inherently taint tainted because it's being funded? Specific deep, way. The deep questions here. Yeah. <laughs> That's Melanie. <laughs> <laughs> I, it seems like art is like um, just a part of the way people make worlds, and it's w people will make art in whatever their context is, and people like have to get a job somewhere, and, like so people in institutions, you know, like you're working, so and you're probably also going to make art if you're an artist. Yeah. Um, but I guess uh, I hope that people like that are also, you know, doing organizing and, like, at least doing some sort of solidarity mm -hmm. type work. Yeah. One thing that frustrates me is I feel that artwork that is coded as political, yeah. um, a lot of times the reviews and the write-ups around this work get tagged as activism. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not sure how I feel about that or whether or not I can reconcile that, I understand that there are different types of activism and it takes all of those kinds, um, but yeah. I'm not sure how making art that isn't inherently um, giving something to the community around it fits into that. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, what are your thoughts? I would hope those artists have at least some um, moments of self-doubt about what they're doing. Like, uh, like, is this good? A am I doing activism? Or am I just, like, um, taking something that because of, uh, opportunistically? Mm -hmm. um, and I think there is an amount of that for sure. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, I don't know. I don't have many thoughts. I don't have many thoughts. No thoughts. I don't. Okay. I don't think about this topic a lot. So <laughs> you're putting me on really on the cuff here. <laughs> Sorry. I just remembered something earlier in my. This is gonna sound stupid. <laughs> in my previous story about um, the metal crew, and I said they were like pit dogs. They were pit bulls. Oh, okay. that makes that makes yeah, sense. Thanks for the clarification. <laughs> it was like one step away. All right, to go back to something you said earlier. Um, you said something about art um, not having to be like, like overtly political. Do you think that there's a such thing as apolitical art? Um, not really. Mm-hmm. I just mean like in terms of like, I guess, content confrontation, and content and theme. Okay. So like, yeah, that, that's I guess kind of what yeah, I meant yeah. there. Like art that is not like having as its subject. Okay. Like political matters. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because yeah. I feel like I I personally feel that to make a political art in 2019 is a political statement. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I don't know. I agree. No. Um. Yeah, it's it's the the class that quote you know if you're neutral in a situation of oppression you've chosen the side of the oppressor. Right. Yeah. You have more art questions. No, that was that was all my art questions. Okay. Um, <laughs> does does uh, Rose City and Tifa? Do you have like events coming up? Um, what does like the calendar for you all look like? Um, we I do not know off the top of my head. Um, yeah, I don't think we have any sort of like speaking events or. Um, fundraiser benefit shows coming up okay. uh, to my knowledge we might there might be in the near future um, maybe probably not by the time this podcast goes out because I don't know when you all publish but um, there might be like some public demos in the future there always are yeah. as it turns out but yeah. luckily things have been relatively quiet yeah. for the last two months in terms of is there like some wood yeah. we can knock off yeah. <laughs> summer is the yeah, summer is the, the busy season. Do you think all the crab boy to tourists come to town? Oh, is it yeah. the tourism and the weather? Like, why? Literally. Okay. <laughs> all right. Yeah, the they're more willing to fly if it's not rainy, and, and then more when it's hot out, they get riled up. Yeah, <laughs> and I don't think you know none of none of these far right organizers have figured out like raincoats, so they're always out there getting <laughs> like, poured on in like neon, yeah, like weird. Yeah. Like badly printed, like <laughs> sweatshirts, and they look yeah. really uncomfortable. Like yeah. all their sweatshirts are like, "I'm a patriot. Dicky. I believe in the, the Second Amendment." <laughs> it's like okay, yeah. it's amazing what they <laughs> haven't figured out. <laughs> but yeah, none of them have uh, rain gear, so I think they are yeah. more reluctant to go out when it's. Mm-hmm. Down like, we are not. <laughs> yeah. We'll be out there yeah. <laughs> no matter the weather. <laughs> yep. Rain or shine. Rain or shine. All right, I think that's it. Yeah, I don't have any more questions. Okay. Um, thank you so much. Yeah, thank for you for like, having um, us. It was great to talk. Yeah, yeah. this was really fun. Thanks for thank coming. You. Thanks for. Um, <laughs> We're very new. So. Yeah. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks for. Um, I guess taking the chance. Um, yeah, for sure. What else? This has been fun. This has been informative. Yeah. Um. What else? We we can recap so people can find you on Twitter. Twitter, Facebook, and our website rosecityantifa.org, oh, yeah. um, where all of our articles are hosted. Um, and where we have, uh, 
Yeah, we all of our docs. Yeah, <laughs> all of our journalism. Read our articles, and we also have a phone number where you can leave us a voicemail if you want to leave us a tip. If you want to send us tips, we love that tip. If you see anything that resembles far right organizing in your area, please uh, hit us up um, with as much detail as you can. Like, try and remember things like license plate numbers, what time of day, where you were, what the person looked like, um, anything like that. And even if it seems like something silly, just it doesn't matter. Just tell us. Yeah, and you can send those to our email, fight yeah. underscore them underscore back at riseup.net. Tips and community tips like that are, are really important for what, what we do. They're huge. And actually really help us a lot and have given us a lot of good information. So that if, if you want to do something to help anti-fascism, that is something yeah. to do for sure. And I'll end, yeah, those, those uh, addresses and phone numbers are on our website. Great. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you yeah, for coming thank in. Thank you. Yeah. yeah hell yeah. Yeah.